Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference and let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us and mostly just one banjo. That's me. If you listen very carefully today, maybe you can hear the rain that's pouring outside my window. I'm in Galway. Normally I can see Galway Bay and the Burren and even the hills of South Galway. But today it's just grey skies and a whole load of water that's falling from the sky. This interview that I did with Abigail Washburn is one of my favourite. Abigail was sitting on her porch in Nashville. You can hear the birds in the background. A lawnmower, which does get closer as the interview goes on. But I love Abigail's honesty, her pureness of spirit, her absolute kindness, her musical integrity. She's one of my favourite artists, uh, one of the people that I've got to meet at festivals. And it's wonderful when you meet your heroes and you find out that they're just lovely human beings. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Abigail Washburn. Sometimes I change my mind. Sometimes I think it's honor for me to talk to you um I'm a, I'm a big big fan first time i saw you playing live was at the uh, the american ambassador's residence in dublin a couple of years ago <gasps> you and bela played and i was blown away it was it was christmas time so we were all dressed up my wife and i my brother and his wife we all got dressed up but it was a big christmas tree we got a photograph of the christmas tree in the ambassador's yeah. residence and you guys played yeah. and it was amazing that was so fun we have the fondest memories of that. Um, I remember um, Kevin O'Malley was the ambassador at the time. I, I don't even know if there is an ambassador right now. Do you? I think Trump like got rid of ambassadors, half of the ambassadors. So, but that, do you know? Right. If I, I, I think one has been appointed, but I, I'm not sure. That's worth looking into. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll find out. I'll find out. But Kevin O'Malley's children were so thrilled about his uh, appointment that they moved over to be with him as well. And they were grown, grown children. So Brendan O'Malley, his son, started a program called Creative Minds. And it was he, he did a lot of really, really cool outreach and connection work. And that was exciting. So but but that that show and then we stayed there. We stayed there with them and we you know, cooked in the kitchen with them and ate with them. And it was just a delight. But, you know, I feel like I remember meeting you that night. Did we meet? We did. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. 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 I feel like we were introduced um, that night. And when you were talking about being all dressed up and being in front of the tree, I was like, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, it was it was fabulous. Uh, Abigail, just to set the scene, 
like take us back right to the very start. I mean, I know your story because I've followed it and I've I've listened to a bunch of your talks and podcasts because I, I just I love your music, but I love your energy and your soul around the music as well. But I'm really interested to hear it again in your own words about how you came to the banjo, because it's not the most uh, straightforward route, maybe. No, it's it's not. Um, they, well, first of all, thanks for um connecting to what I do. And now that I've been able to perform with you guys and listen to your music, we listen to you all the time and um, you've become a part of our, our lives. So thanks for, for being, um, for being in the community. And I'm, I'm just proud to be in it with you guys and with you. Um, so, uh, you know, it is so funny. I, the story now feels so far away, especially after this year of COVID and the way um, I had, I, I felt a need to invest my time so deeply in just being present in the moment in my family that um, now talking about myself and my story and my path to my career in banjo music is, it's anyway, you're, you're waking me up. So right now you're, you're helping to wake me up in a way I haven't been um, awake in a while. Uh, so I hope, I hope I, I hope it comes back to me. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, most of my concerns this year have been around making sure I'm making balanced meals and um, homeschooling the correct things to my children and, um, you know, being safe and trying to understand what that is because um, there's a lot of mixed messages about that in our country in particular. So, yeah. um, But, yes, so the, my path to becoming a banjo player. I didn't play when I was young. I didn't grow up in a, a family of musicians or folk music. Um, it wasn't until I went to university and I started seeing friends and I was dating a guy at the time who was in a bluegrass band and started learning mandolin. And he and a couple of friends formed a bluegrass band, a, a bluegrass band for, you know, they had never played it in their lives, but it suddenly became enamored with it. And I, so I ended up being at, like the, the merch, you know, the merch seller at their shows and listening to a lot of them playing bluegrass. And I, I did love it. I really loved the community that came together around it. I loved how it wasn't just performance music, but it was jamming music. It was music you sit around and play together, which I didn't grow up with. I really grew up in suburban mainstream radio hit America. And I wasn't familiar with that. So that sense of of a grounded community um, gathering around this well of music that's towed by this incredible ancestral line of rich culture and heritage, you know, leading back to, to, to the ground, the fertile ground you stand on, you know, um, it, it just blew my mind and I became very excited about it. Now, bluegrass wasn't exactly what I caught on to. I felt it was, uh, even though there were amazing people doing it at the time that weren't men, you know, Alison Krauss, Alison, Brown, um, a, a good handful of people out there doing their thing. Um, uh, uh, Rhonda Vincent, I, I still didn't feel drawn to the aesthetic as much as I felt drawn to an aesthetic that came to me through the world of bluegrass, which was old time American string band music rooted in um, sort of Anglo Appalachian traditions. And I also fell in love deeply with um, you can, not that you can separate them out, but the, the West, the African and the, the black history of American Appalachian music too, but it often was segregated in our history of um, the recording industry. So it needs to be acknowledged that, that um, 
when I say Anglo-Appalachian, I mean what happened to the music because of the recording industry and because of um, a racist uh, a racist world, you know, a racist system that we live in. Um, but those worlds started to really come together for me. Um, race, culture, the melting pot of American early American history and our continued history in that sense, uh, because the the, the old time banjo became this window for me into the history of America and our immigrant populations and the way our modern history came to be through through that kind of immigration. So I felt really strong, strongly attracted to the old time Appalachian string band um, music because of what it taught me about my own native culture um, and the music that was made with it because it was really more focused on that sense of community and um, the oral folk tradition and uh, sitting in a circle and just playing and playing and playing. Um, and, and bluegrass felt a little bit more like a, a kind of a, a stiffer format that you had to fit into. And um, so I started playing old time banjo, but it, it, was, it was not before, it was actually partly, honestly, the biggest reason the banjo really spoke to me at that moment in my life, I think I was a junior in, at university, third year, um, was because I had been studying Chinese for two years. And I fell madly in love with Chinese culture. I was spending all of my time and my energy trying to learn Chinese late, you know, late in life and uh, learn more about Chinese culture. And I, people in China would ask me when I was over there doing uh, foreign exchange programs, like, what, what is American culture? What is it about? And I had never been forced to think about that before not forced, but I'd never been in a position where I had the perspective that my own culture would be foreign to someone else and I would have to explain it. So that was a wonderful wake up call for me as well was what is your culture, Abigail? You know, who, who are you? Where do you come from? What is your identity? How does it compare to, to, to this culture that you're falling in love with in, in the East, you know? And so that was a huge reason that I, I, I glommed on to this old time banjo idea and thought to myself, when I go back to China, I'm going to bring my old time banjo with me and I'm going to share music that I've learned, share a little bit about the history of American America and its early immigrants on the Eastern seaboard through this music. Um, and that's going to be one of my offerings as a, a cultural offering, a cultural exchange, a sense of my own identity and connection to my native culture. Yeah. So that's how it all got started. That's, that's the origin story, I think. <laughs> And have you probably looked, forgot stuff, but you know, have you looked into your your ancestral background? And I asked that question because, you know, I'm Irish and we we tour within the Irish circuit in America. And so you have people who identify very strongly as Irish and they've had the DNA test and the whole lot. And they're like, I'm 75 percent Irish and 20 percent this and 20, you know, and it's a real it's it's something that struck me about America because I grew up in Ireland and Everybody in my family, as far back as anybody knows, were in Ireland. So it was never a question of where are you from? It's like, well, I'm from Ireland. But when I went to America, everybody would say, well, I live in Minnesota, but I'm from X, Y and Z. And my great, 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 great grandfather was from here. And and that searching for identity was seemed to be a very, very strong thing. And I'm wondering, have you looked at your ancestral roots and have that has that played into your understanding of American culture? Yes. So I live in Tennessee now, uh, but my uh, father's side of the family settled from mostly from Germany in Minnesota. <laughs> and um, the other side, my mom's side of the family 
um, there's more, um, there's a little less clarity about where they, where I only know because of 23andMe testing, uh, what, what my ancestry probably is. And I didn't know how much French I had in me. So my ancestry is really connected through the, the, the pig farming of Minnesota back to Germany and through, um, uh, you know, rail building and, um, uh, guess what were they, um, um, I, you know, they became small business owners, really, in Missouri, um, back to mostly French and some German. So, no, I don't I don't have specifically any Celtic. Um, well, I, 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 I don't not that 23 and me has let me know, <laughs> so, but I feel a very strong connection to Irish culture. And uh, maybe it just feels like um, just one of the warmest feelings in the world for me is thinking about Irish music, feeling that drive and that beauty and the, um, the balladry in my mind and being there on, you know, soft days and eating brown, you know, eating, just having a, just the whole, the whole thing is really um, special to me. And I wish it was in my blood. And I, I, I assume there's been intermixing at some point, but no, I'm, I'm not specifically connected to Irish ancestry. Uh, but would you have a, an awareness then within old time music of the, the place of, the, of Irish immigrants? Uh, well, well, certainly um, there are songs that when passed along orally, people say this, this came from Irish singing tradition or this likely, there's a lot of, um, disagreement too whether it would be Irish or Scotch you know that, that there's some claiming of things that goes on that I can't I can't see through you know um, but no a lot of the music that I've learned there's some kind of strong tie back to uh, Ireland or Scotland it's not quite as acknowledged as much what which piece of it is English um, but no there's a, there's a strong identity identity identifying with the Irish and Scottish culture and West African culture, although we're a little less connected in the community that I'm into, the, what specifically those, like the, the different um, aspects of the culture that were brought here other than what we know about the banjo and its, its um, contribution. There's also the Gola people and the early songs on the plantations that have become a major part of, of um, the canon of music that we do. So yeah, it's, it, it does feel like what I'm, in my awareness, it's Irish, Scotch, and West African. Mm. See, I would uh, I would connect very much with what you were talking about earlier in that, and I, I know I'm a first-string Irish banjo player, I would have heard bluegrass, like, you know, the real straight-up bluegrass. But when I heard Old Bella Reed, or Ola Bella Reed, <laughs> singing, and we recorded one of her songs on our first album for, for that reason, when she did that, uh, Gonna Write Me a Letter, and there's a there's an earthy, raw quality to that music that drew me in immediately. And it, it just created layers in my own understanding of the banjo that had never been there before. Mm. Oh, neat. Yeah, she's um, been a powerhouse for me, too. I'm getting ready to record, um, for the second time, a My Epitaph by her, which is just a beautiful piece. Um, yeah, so, but the idea that you hear something, um, and it, it, I love the way you put it, that it creates these new layers of, you know, 
um, topography in your mind about what it is that you're doing yourself with your instrument. Yeah, I, and I think what you see, what I've got from your playing is what I discovered in old time music is that there's a depth and, and a layered quality to the simplicity Whereas before I would have always thought <clears throat> I need to be super complicated and put in loads of rolls and a hundred triplets in order for it to be banjo music. And then it was like, no, there's like two notes is magic. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I was drawn to, too. And I think a part of the magic and you know this well, the diff- one of the main differences between how usually a bluegrass player would approach uh, their their instrument and how an old-time banjo player would approach their instrument is um, thinking more about tunings and open tunings in old-time music. And the idea that you actually play less and yet the, and allow the resonance of the, of the full string to ring out more. Uh, it's like trying to beckon, you know, this, the ancient tones to come forward. Whereas I feel like bluegrass is more of trying to push forward, uh, push forward with technical ability and performance ability. Um, and an old time, we're reaching to the past to pull forward what should never be lost, mm. which is the basic resonance of the string itself. You know? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> that's magic. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's really good. You should write that down. <laughs> well, <laughs> I should write that down. You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Abigail Washington. No, but I'm, I'm in a marriage that brings together in banjo reality those those two perspectives, you know, because I'm married to Bela Fleck, who's this very forward-pushing banjo player who says, hey, this banjo is an amazing connection to our past, but look what it can do, you know, look what it can do going forward. And I'm more of a person that goes, oh, my gosh, let's reach back, let's stay there, you know, that... That's my magic spot, you know, is, is being in this, this the, the voices of the ancestors and that that sound of just a, just the string itself ringing, you know. Um, so, yeah, he and I are a really interesting pair and we think we do dwell in this space a lot. So that's probably why I have some vocabulary for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Abigail, when when did you, you know, make that transition to becoming a full time musician as a banjo player? Because, well, it's it's not the easiest jump to make to kind of go, wow, there's a there's a there's a career here, there's a path, there's something yeah. I can make a living from. I'd love to know that from you as well, but I'll I'll start with me. Um, I uh, I didn't ever think music was a, a feasible um, lifestyle, you know, in terms of a career, money, etc. So I never, you know, in addition to the fact that my parents, you know, we didn't have an environment of music, you know, a musical life at home. uh, I also just, it just didn't seem like music, you could make it in music unless you were the best. So, um, and I never was the best. Nobody, you know, heard me or uh, sing. I always loved to sing. They didn't hear me and say, oh, you're great, you know. So um, I, but I always sang in choir. I just, I always wanted to be in the choir. And I knew for the rest of my life, I'd always be in the choir, you know. Um, so it wasn't until I felt this real um, dedication after starting to learn Chinese to trying to share pieces of American culture that I started singing 
um, really stepping out and singing with my banjo. Um, and part of what gave me courage to do that was the fact that the people who came before me weren't professionals, you know, and, and the other people I saw around me playing this music weren't professionals. They just liked to sit together and play and remember and feel, um, feel the ethos of, of the thread that, you know, connects all of humanity from ancient times going forward to who knows where we'll end up, you know? So, um, I just liked sitting in that place. Um, I didn't think I could turn this into a career or, or even that I had a great voice. So, um, I still don't identify with someone who thinks of themselves as particularly good at what I do. I, I, maybe it's because I don't want that to be important, you know? So I, I don't, I resist even thinking about that. Um, what I, what I, although I do strive to do the best I can according to my own measurements, you know? Um, but I, um, I just, I just wanted to be in that place. And it wasn't until I went to the Augusta Heritage Center in West Virginia and I, I actually took, like, was a part of a Fiddler's Weekend and took some banjo classes. Um, I also went to banjo camp because I really wanted to be capable. I went to a banjo camp in the north when I was living in Vermont and uh, learned some tunes. And in those two instances, to my extreme surprise, and at this time, I'm studying, I'm studying to go to law school in China. So I am not thinking at all about a career in banjo. This is just literally sort of a sideline going on for me to prepare to be someone who can know a little bit more about my own identity on a, on a personal curiosity level, but also be able to share more of that when I go to China. But I really was focused on becoming a lawyer and getting involved in some kind of international law work after getting my law degree in China. So that's where my whole frame of mind was. And so when I went to these camps, it was just pure curiosity, pure fun, I mean, I think I smiled the entire time at both camps, you know, and I was just overjoyed by doing something without thinking about whether or not I was the best at it or could get into the school or could, you know, get the deal or none of that was on my mind. Um, I, I saved all of that for my, you know, my career life that I was building. Uh, so there was just pure joy in it for me. And when I sang and I played the few few songs that I had learned at that point, uh, mostly inspired by, um, oh my gosh, why is it out of my mind right now? Because I change diapers all day. I can't think of one, <laughs> one of my favorite artists. Ah! Okay. Well, if it comes back to me by the end, uh, oh no, it's not there. Um, anyway, uh, I had learned a number of, of pieces of music from some of my favorite artists artists um and i was singing them and playing them on the banjo very rudimentary you know um but people thought i sounded great the people at banjo camp north and then at augusta heritage center just a small group of people started following me around everywhere and wanted to listen to me sing those same songs over and over and i was like you guys are crazy but at the same time i had this like I, I don't know if this is what you get when you get excited or you know something really special is happening to you. I, I felt this like really warm, almost like hot sort of bar of energy go from my gut up to my head. And I was just feeling that the whole weekend at both of those events and then for days afterwards. And it was just so exciting to have people think I did something that I loved so much well. 
and that I found so much joy from it. Uh, it just brought all the reasons to be alive together in the in one place, you know. And so as I was uh, really getting ready to go off to, to law school in China, I um, decided to go for one more trip, and then I was going to pack my bags and get on the plane. And one of the places I went was to the IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association Convention in Louisville, Kentucky. And I knew it was going to be mostly bluegrass, but I just, I just wanted to go check it out. I was sleeping in my truck out in the garage, you know, and in the, in the, you know, whatever. Um, going in during the days, my old time banjo. And eventually I found a couple of other women there, young women like me. I think I was 21, 22 at the time, 23. And uh, we, ended up deciding to jam. We said, oh, you got, you know, we're all girls. There aren't that many girls here. Let's jam. And so we met, I remember the fifth floor elevator lobby at midnight and we sat down together and I was very nervous because I had not jammed bluegrass or, you know, anything like that ever before. I'd only played a certain number of tunes at camps. You know what I mean? You've probably taught at a camp before and, you know, it, that feeling of being a camper and just trying to hang in there. So I sat down and by then I'd learned a couple more songs and a couple of them were translations of songs into Chinese, you know, which everybody thought was a real hoot. And uh, I, I played those songs along with the other women. And by the end of the night, we were offered a record deal um, just on those few songs alone. You know, uh, it, it didn't actually come to fruition, but the result was I, I, I put off going to China, China and that, that sort of heat, you know, in my body that knew I was doing something special and that I needed to continue opening the door and seeing what could happen. That was really so alive in me that I, I decided to relocate to Nashville, you know, have a stable career, which I found right away in Nashville and, and try to see where this could go. I also met the band Uncle Earl at that festival. And that's when I joined Uncle Earl uh, to be a part of their band. That record deal didn't, didn't work out. Uh, that I was going to do with these other women who still I adore to this day, but um, they were in bands with people who really knew how to play and they didn't want to leave their bands to play with somebody that didn't know what she was doing. I don't blame them. You know, I don't blame them one bit, but uh, over the years I've learned, you know, I've learned how to play more and more of the things that I really want to share with people and want to embody myself and, um, and, and and then who knew I would end up marrying this guy, Bela Fleck, who plays a lot of banjo. So it's become my life. <laughs> it's an amazing story. It's an amazing arc of a story. And I'm so curious about you at that time. Like, were you really open to inspiration almost as a universal energy kind of thing that you would you know, give up something that seemed to be such an obvious career path, like you had put all of this time into learning Chinese and you were going to go and become a lawyer. Like that seemed like a very strong uh, path and plan that you had in place. Like to stop that and to go, I'm going to have a crack at music and then for it all to just work out like this. Like, have you got a, a higher power kind of God connection that you that you live your life by? Is that is that a part of all of this? It, it is. Yeah. I mean, I was raised Unitarian Universalist, which might mean something to someone listening, but um, I, uh, it, it, it was really focused on humanitarian, the humanitarian aspect of our divine um, meaning. And uh, as I've 
gotten older, I definitely continue to identify with the idea that there's this one unity of a tremendous, it, it, there aren't just a bunch of separate realities, uh, divine realities. I, I think it's all one, one big piece. And that's the Unitarian Universalist piece of it. Um, and I do, I, I speak to God, I pray a lot. Um, I would say I didn't do it back then as much as I do now. When I had children, I really needed someone to talk to. <laughs> you know, that wasn't human. <laughs> and um, and so I, I started using the name God, and um, I'm so glad for it. Um, it brings a, a tremendous amount of power because of the way it's it's been powerful. It's a powerful word. It evokes a lot. Um, so, yeah, I have a very, very strong spiritual underpinning. Um, and I have very confused children because my husband is agnostic, uh, you know, um, leaning towards atheism. So, um, you know, I, I say a prayer to my children every night and their father's like, whatever, let's go to bed, you know. (laughs) 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 Um, but no, I, I definitely always had this sense that, um, there, there's greater power and I'm a part of something huge and, a very small piece of it, but everything I do matters and it has an impact. And so if I can embody more and more, and this is partly my social justice upbringing, you know, I had Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King on my wall. You know, that was my, my posters in high school and the United Nations emblem. And um, so I was always thinking about how can I be the change I want to see in the world? How can I be the things that will create the world I want, even in a very, very, very small way. And so I always thought to myself, you know, um, being able to be open to an, to the energy that makes us feel so alive and purposeful, not shutting that out because we have other ideas. So when I started to feel that heat in my body that knew this was so special, I couldn't ignore it. I said, this is, this is a sense of, um, this is a sense of knowing. This is a knowing. Uh, it's a different knowing than our intellect, but it's a knowing that I need to I need to pay attention to. And I would say it's a knowing that's more connected to my divine uh, nature. Um, not that intelligence isn't divine either, but um, a letting go, a letting go, and surrendering to an idea that isn't mine. <laughs> that wasn't my intellectual idea. Uh, so I will say that I mourned and grieved many times periodically throughout those first five, six years of dedicating myself to music, um, the, the, la- the, the, the loss of what I thought I was going to become and the loss of connections that were hard to maintain um, because I had not chosen the path of going to, ch- going to China to be- do what I thought I was going to do. So yeah, there was a lot of grieving that loss. Um, but simultaneously, very exciting things kept happening, and that heat was just all was just constant, you know, inside of me. Um, yeah, did, did that connect with your your yeah, question? It's an amazing answer, and I'm stunned by the idea that you would grieve what you had lost because that doesn't fit with the kind of Hollywood narrative of. I went to the IBMA, I was offered a record deal, and then boom, I married Bela Fleck, and, and now we got all these banjos, you know. But I think that's beautiful because it's, it's incredibly human to say, wow. It- I loved you said, boom, I married Bela Fleck, and boom, we had all these banjos. Yeah, it was that You'd easy. expect like babies, but. 
<laughs> there definitely are a lot of banjos involved in my life. <laughs> we'll yes, get we'll, we'll get to the babies in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Abigail Washburn. Let's jump into um, what it's like being off the road. I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a dad. I got a, I got an 11 year old son who, partly delighted that I'm at home the whole time, and partly disappointed that he doesn't get sleep on my side of the bed while I'm away. <laughs> right, I'm sure you know. So, like you've you've toured with Juno and but now you've been at home for over a year like are you are you nervous about going back out or are you looking forward to it or are you kind of going wow this has been amazing I'd like to do this the whole time all of it <laughs> you know what about you uh it's a bit of both I am excited to go back and I'm nervous about it as well I've loved being at home but my wife always called it the transition when I'd come home from tour it was a bit like you know Bono you know used to go and stay in a hotel for two weeks until he turned into a human again now I'm not like Bono in a lot of ways but it was like that the first couple of days were kind of a bit hairy and then and then we got into it and this was the same it it took a while but then it's fabulous but I'm also excited to go back yeah, it sounds similar. Um, we have a, our little boy, Theodore, um, has a disease that's very, a rare chronic liver disease. And ever since we became aware of his illness, I think it was a, almost two years ago now, uh, we became fairly like hypervigilant about doing the most we can to make sure he's okay. And that was even before COVID. So when COVID came along, it gave us even more reasons to be worried people. But um, uh, so I would say I'm still still really navigating what it looks like uh, to be vaccinated adults with unvaccinated children and one of them who's high, high risk. So uh, I, in particular, am going to stay really stable and present. Um, I mean, I do anyway, but um, I I was deciding this year, since my son was going to start first grade, our older son was going to start first grade, Juno, uh, that I was going to stay home uh, a lot more. So this was kind of, this was like a cold turkey dive, full dive in, you know, I was still going to do some weekend dates and we were going to take the kids to to do some weekend stuff. But um, uh so I can see ramping back up to the original idea, which was to really be be more home with the kids and um, slowly, you know, adding some weekends in here and there. But no, I, I, I and I think this really started when I became a mother. I really don't want to travel much. And I'm not saying all moms feel like this. They certainly don't. But I I'm really into my into being with my kids all the time. So. Um, and I know this period of their lives will go quickly and I just really want to be there. And, um, and Theodore also with his illness really brought us a new appreciation for just every day, every, every moment we have. And, um, yeah, and we also need to be attentive to his medical needs. So there's life got, life got thicker, you know, um, 
And I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to stay. I mean, you probably can tell I, I look a little uncertain because we just don't know what the future looks like, but Bela's going to start doing some full tours in September and then December. And we're going to do some stuff together on the weekends in October, and November. There's a possibility that I'll homeschool Juno the second semester because we might go to Australia and some stuff in East Asia, but it all depends on everything that's happening in the world. So how did you find homeschooling? I've never done anything harder. I've never done anything harder. Holy cow. Um, trying to be a mom and a teacher uh, and learn how to teach things. Holy cow. Because I, I, I suppose I could have just like gotten a bunch of workbooks and asked him to do the workbooks, which still would have been a challenge. But I decided to do this thing where I have a curriculum guide, but I'm supposed to create the 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 what happens every day so every night i'm up for hours writing a long story because i noticed that juno really responds to learning if it's a part embedded in a, a story and so i stay up writing these stories about different characters right now i'm in the middle of um multiplication addition subtraction and division learning like that there are four processes in math and not just like how do you use them to um to understand quantities, but how do you use them to understand their power in the world, you know? So the idea that like, if you just keep adding and adding and adding, then you can end up with too much. So you end up with waste, you end up with, you know, all these things. If you subtract too much and too much, you don't have enough, you know? And if you, um, and that really all of these four processes are, are about a balance that we create in the world. Um, so there's that sort of overarching meaning meaning of why we use these processes and then there's also like how do we literally use them to do equations that will help us uh navigate um so many aspects of our lives that require numbers and and knowing you know so like so i'm like deep in the world of like how do i best communicate this to my child how do i create the world i want to live in by sharing my values with him you know so every every day is is that and then you know the three meals and a lot of that's that basic caretaking cleaning the bathrooms you know teaching my children how to clean toilets you know because that's a piece of being a human and having to live in this world you know so yeah i'm getting to really discover and live my values in a way that i've never never spent dedicated time doing before so i i will forever be grateful for this year and will it, it will forever change me and our family and um I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's obvious that I would never want people to suffer the way they have um, from this disease, but wow, what it's done for, for a lot of us that decided to sink in and let it teach us. It's been amazing, you know? Yeah, I think that's a brilliant attitude to it. And I remember reading Eckhart Tolle many years ago when I had some stuff going on in my life and he talked about, um, coming up against very difficult circumstances in your life and that it was an opportunity to deepen and that you essentially had a choice that you were either going to deepen or you were going to become more entrenched. And I remember at that time, I was like, I have no idea how to deepen and open, but I don't want the other one. <laughs> right. The idea of this difference between entrenched and deepened, I, I 
didn't I hadn't heard of that before. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So and what did it mean for you? Did you what did you figure out? What it meant is that I wasn't going to get lost in the anger around the situation or become a, a victim within the situation, which would be would, would, which would cause me to just become an angry person and that I'd rather take the pain and open up, open my heart more. And I tried to approach the pandemic with, with the same outlook. And it's not that I, uh, you know, levitate every day. I don't. Uh, the opposite, if anything, I'm constantly dragging myself out of the mud of my myself. But I'm open to that because I'm afraid of the other side. <laughs> Fear is still a very motivating factor yeah. for all of us, I believe. Yeah. You, you talked about um, when you were in school and like, you know, being really driven to get the A plus and all the rest of it. As a musician, have you have you got that inner critic that drives and demonizes? Mm. Yeah, certainly. Um, <laughs> um, one of the most wonderful things, and I hope this exists in all professions, and I imagine it does, but um, in order to not just be a in order to realize like my own voice, I had to be okay with what it is and what it isn't. So that journey, which will continue, you know, into the grave, I'm sure, uh, is the, the biggest thing for me. And it's been, it's been a huge relief to think about the fact that think, the things that I can't be, that I am not, that I, I'm not going to put my energy into, even though maybe I wish I could, could attain them, you know. Um, like my fingers working like Bela's or thinking maybe I, they should work like that. That's more of the shoulds. But when I really listen to like, who, who am I and what do I really have to give? I can let go. I can, I can let go of those things that I'm not. And the more I let go of the things that I'm not and the, the more I let go of the shoulds, the more I become who I really am supposed to be and what I really am supposed to be giving. So, um, I would say that's been the that's been the thing that's quieted the critic. I say because it, it got it's smarter than the critic. It comes in and says, "Critic, you're really smart. You're really good at like pointing out these detailed aspects of what she could be doing better." But I'm the one who can tell her which of that matters or not, and. Certainly, I do strive. I appreciate that critic so much when I'm striving to make a really a record I really believe in. Whether that critic is telling me, you really just have to take the live take, or the critic saying, no, you really need to dig in there and maybe edit those couple of bars because they just aren't good enough. Or no, you really need to do that a couple more times. Or you really sucked when you played that song tonight. Work on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Those things are incredibly helpful. And I realize there's a sound now in the background that's going to be really <laughs> annoying. It's so perfectly beautiful and peaceful here for a long time. That sounds like somebody and that, mowing the lawn, right? terribly annoying if I jump in my car with you? Not at all, no. Okay. I'm trying to stay out of, out of range of my children right now so that they don't completely uh, redirect our phone call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you reminded me of the, uh, the 11th and 12th commandments, which are... I, sh I shall not should on myself and I shall not should on others. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good Lord. I got to remember that one. <laughs> That's great. 
I loved <laughs> what I loved what you said. And I mean, I you're talking about the inner critic, and I guess you know almost perfectionism. And but you talked about recording an album that you really believe in, rather yeah. than recording an album that's really good. Yeah, and there's a that's big a difference, isn't there? It. Yeah, I think there's a big difference. Um, I would never totally shun the voices that um, help us shape ourselves to be a part of society and community. And yet um, I like to strengthen the part of myself that knows when to listen and when to not listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that you're the proverbial mom that's hiding in the car from her kids so she can have a short (laughs) conversation. (laughs) No, I'm hiding from lawnmowers in the neighborhood too. <laughs> oh, that's great. Are you uh, are you kind to yourself? Mm, that's a great question. I definitely could be kinder, and I think that would help everybody in my life. So, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> pursuing um like trying to do good or help or um take care that I do often um forget to just enjoy myself especially yeah no I think that's always been my my way and I I would like to be kinder to myself I don't know exactly what that means well, it's curious because it reminds me when you said, are you looking forward to going back on tour? One of the things that and one of the decisions that I made with my wife when I decided to give up a full time job and uh, my son was only maybe two or three years old. Was that when I uh, when I play music and I gave myself to the career with the creativity, you know, and some of the difficulty, but I was a happier person because I wasn't in this job that I really didn't like that paid really well but I hated myself in the job and we decided that if I'm a happier person even though there are sacrifices that are made that it gives me an opportunity then to be a better father and a better husband when I am around yeah and I think that speaks to what you said if I'm kinder to myself then everybody's going to benefit yes I think that's exactly right Mm. We have to have these deep conversations because we're banjo players and it just covers up our lack of Bela's right hand, right? <laughs> and left hand. It's got to show we, we put our thoughts somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do all of that jazzy stuff, but I'm really deep instead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, the Lord. Yeah. So I want to ask you one other question, which, uh, you know, you talked about uh, your social justice um, leanings. Do you find it difficult then as a musician of note to straddle that line between offering an audience an escape from the over-politicized world or be a warrior for social justice through your platform? That's just a continuing question for everybody. Well, everybody who, you know, has a mindset to of activism in any way, shape, or form. Um, I guess I'm 
I often like to think of the songs as speaking for themselves uh, and building messages into the songs that really share my process of trying to understand my place in the world and my place in the struggles that we experience um, and my hopes for it. And then, like you were saying, I mean, escapism is can be a kind of kindness to yourself, right? So, um, so I think that's an important piece of it all too, just in enjoying some of the things that come out of me, you know, <laughs> they don't have to particularly be a part of any fight, you know? Um, but I also do feel like having a platform, I need to say some things too. So, um, and social media has really confused me because I'm not quite of that generation that grew up with it. So, um, how to use it as a piece of who I am and my voice and my connection to people. I still don't understand. And I, sh I sure wish there was some kind of workshop a person like me could go to where they really ease you into like, Hey, this is a great way to like, you know, be, have it be a part of your identity. You know, uh, it still feels separate from me. Um, but yeah, I, um, I just, I care a lot. And there are some things like, um, I definitely try to support certain organizations and vocally and, you know, clearly on my, my website. A lot of what I do is, is try to share how I'm trying to expand my empathy and my understanding of different stories and different realities in the world so that I can be a more thoughtful human being. And that, that's really what I would like to share more than specific causes or specific fights. Um, however, I do get involved sometimes. And I would say I had a wonderful opportunity recently. I say wonderful. It was brutally difficult, but um, wonderful in the sense that once again, you take on the hard stuff and you can either get deeper or what was the word entrenched. And I decided to try to go deeper. So um, I was called out online for some anti-Asian uh, Asian American sentiment, anti-Asian sentiment. And um, which, of course, hit really hard for me because a lot of my life has been built around trying to understand and explore the stories, the language, the way of communicating for Chinese people and largely mainland Chinese people. So there's a lot of difference and diversity within the Chinese and diaspora. But um, yeah, so I, um, I had this chance to really think about what I was being called out for. And as much as I don't like the process of calling people out, um, I also see that it gives me a chance to play a role in a social movement, even if it's a really uncomfortable one. So uh, thanks to my dear friend, Holly Chang, for helping me see that, that it wasn't personal. It was a calling to play a role in a social movement. And, uh, and so I, uh, I dug deep and I went into thinking, and I've been thinking a lot about systemic racism, and especially in America and, um, and our individual responsibility around it. And um, it gave me a chance to say something about that and care a lot and say, I hear you and I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm responding, you know, and I did things that hurt people. And I'm really sorry. So I'm, I'm grateful to be able to play a role in social movements, even when I didn't think I was going to, or didn't want to. Um, yeah. I'm here to try to be here with other people and make it better if I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just feeling that out all the time, right? Yeah. I'm always feeling that out. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> this isn't really a question, but it's a good way to finish. 
I absolutely adore your onstage banter with Bela. It's hysterical. <laughs> it's it's okay. so good. I, and I think I listened to an interview with the two of you where he, he was joking, saying, sometimes we actually get to play some music. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such an important part of a show because the audience, and I, I, we saw you at Wintergrass, which is the last time we hung out. And man, yeah, where we had, played together. You you had yeah. the audience in the palm of your hand. It was magic to watch it. It was so cool. Oh, that's neat. Well, that was a particularly um, attentive and engrossed audience, you know, just across the board. I mean, I saw them at your show, too, and it was thrilling. I mean, they were ecstatic, you know. So it felt like whatever you had to bring to the to the stage, they were meeting you there. You know, that, and that luckily happens a lot, you know, so. But thanks for sharing that. Um, that's nice to hear. I think one of my finest moments ever in my the history of my life will be at Wintergrass when we performed on Sunday afternoon. And my son, as I was walking out after Bela was playing a solo, I looked over at Juno and I said, hey, do you want to come out and sing a song with me? And he, he thought about it. He's like, no. And I, so I started walking out. And then all of a sudden, I feel his little hand in mine. And he walks out onto the stage with me. And we sing Bright Morning Stars together. And... Um, Luckily, our sound man could pull out his phone and recorded it just in time. But that was incredibly special. And I, I hope more things happen like that. And yet I don't want my, my poor son to end up feeling like he's a stage kid, you know. So, <laughs> But luckily, in this, in this world of music that you and I dwell in, which I'm so grateful for, of, of folk, oral tradition-oriented music, um, it, it's, it's just a piece of life. And I hope that's what he grows up feeling is that this is a special piece of my life that gives me added expression and meaning and connection to my ancestors and to the future, you know. Beautiful. Well, listen, I'm going to let you get back to the diapers because I'm sure you're missing them already, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I, the stench is making its way to the car right now. <laughs> what will I put in his hand Will that, that will make him allow me to change his dirty, dirty diaper? Yeah, okay. Anyway, you don't uh, need that. Uh, Abigail, thank you so much. It's been a absolute pleasure talking and thank you for being so open yeah well thanks for um being such a warm listener i mean i would not have spoken like this had it not been for who you are so thank you for wanting me to be this mm -hmm. well thank you for that i appreciate that and yeah. I, we can't wait to see you again in, in, in the real here. world yeah yeah same here and when when juno and theodore are vaccinated i i my i'll this will all open up and we'll see what happens next, you know? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Good times ahead. Yes, yes. Yeah. And good times now, luckily. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time, Inside the Podcast.